0: What a delightful day! Good to see, you, brothers and sisters. Would you please turn your Bibles to John chapter one? John chapter one. Michael Servetus was a 16th-century Spanish radical reformer of the church who shocked and troubled both Roman Catholics and Protestants alike. So greatly did Michael Servetus trouble Catholics and Protestants that he was arrested by Roman Catholic authorities in southern France on April 4th of 1553. He escaped on April 7th, and ultimately he fled to Geneva, Switzerland, where he was spotted by Genevan authorities on Sunday after church, August 13th, 1553. He'd been attending the service at St. Pierre Cathedral, that's the church where John Calvin was a preacher. Michael Servetus was tried for heresy by the Genevan City Council. He was convicted of heresy and burned at the stake on October 17th. 1553 atop a pyre a pile of his own heretical writings why was michael servetus executed for his religious views what caused nearly all of 16th century western christendom to call for the arrest and execution of michael servetus a man who claimed christ as his savior what was michael servetus teaching that made him and his words so dangerous and so despised Friends, Michael Servetus was an anti-Trinitarian heretic who denied and mocked the doctrine of the Trinity, calling it a three-headed monster. He did not believe that Jesus Christ was God. The first chapter of John, chapter 1, that we've been studying, is explicit in proclaiming to you, Jesus is God. This doctrine. Michael Servetus disagreed with. And taught contrary. John Calvin was engaged with Servetus politely in letters, with biblical reason and grace for a period of time, but finally resolved that Servetus was a desperate, obstinate heretic. Reformer Peter Martyr said Regarding Servetus, I have nothing to say but that he was the devil's own son, whose evil and detestable doctrine must everywhere be banished. Nor is the magistrate who executed him to be blamed, since there could be found in Servetus no sign of repentance and his blasphemies simply could not be tolerated. It is important to note that Servetus was convicted not only for his anti-Trinitarian, anti-Jesus-is-God heretical beliefs, but he was also an anti-infant baptism position holder. That's right, he agreed with us. Servetus was against the baptizing of babies, a doctrine on which he was accurate. Further still, it's important to note, as we're told by Nick Needham, like almost all Christians in his day, John Calvin accepted that the state was under moral obligation to God to punish heretics, and ironically, even Michael Servetus himself taught that Christian magistrates should punish heretics to the point of death. What is the lesson for us in the life of heretics Michael Servetus. What shall we take away from this life of a man who held heretical views about Jesus Christ and his born of the state? From Michael Servetus, we must come to understand you can't run your mouth espousing heretical viewpoints without ultimately being confronted by the Word of God and the authorities in charge of the church. Words, friends, have meaning. We use words to form purpose-filled sentences to express our greatest thoughts and ideas that are aimed at informing the minds of others, assaulting the consciences of others, and convicting the will of others. If you didn't know this about me, that's exactly why I'm standing here at this pulpit today. On behalf of God, to convict your conscience, to change and shape your will, that you might be conformed to You see, heretics, they don't want listeners. Heretics want followers. Words convey ideas that demand obedience. For instance, in Genesis 1, God spoke the world into existence. 4,500 years later, in Acts 1730, God is now calling on all men everywhere to repent. Based on this principle, this principle that words convey ideas that demand obedience we can understand the words of German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, who said, all I need is a sheet of paper and something to write with, and then I can turn the world upside down. Based on this principle, we laugh at the great humor of former President Ronald Reagan, who said, the most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government, and I'm here to help. Words have consequences. You are not free to say anything that you want to say. You can't yell fire in a crowded room. You can't tell someone, hey, keep this between you and I, and then go on to gossip and slander other people. You can't tell me today that you want to commit suicide and think that I'm going to leave that between you and I. The authorities will stop you from performing suicide. You can't even do what you want. You can't even end your life in most places. In our crazy world, you can't say in today's day and age, that gender is binary that there are only two sexes male and female you and i both know that i can't say that we all know the government is using our iPhones and Alexa monitoring devices to gather and catalog our words and store them in massive data farm warehouses in utah for use against us in the coming years the price for preaching Christianity is government confrontation and jail we can never forget canadian pastor james post arrested for preaching Truth, righteousness of Jesus two years ago in violation of the Canadian Public Health Act. Unrighteous authorities hate all words spoken about Jesus, whose authority is greater than theirs. All authorities derive their authority from Jesus, he's the one who gave it, to and yet they use their authority to despise. This is exactly what we see in John 1.19, where you are now in your Bible, John 1.19. At John 1.19, the Apostle John's prologue is over. In 18 verses, he potently declared, Jesus is God. John knows the signs and miracles that he's going to tell his audience for the following 21 chapters, that they demand up front that you know this very truth, Jesus is God. He is co-equal, co-existent, and co-eternal with his Father and with the Holy Spirit. This is the knowledge that determines whether someone will spend their eternity in heaven or hell, friends. Do you know that? So many people will quote to you, John 3.16, John 3.16, brothers and sisters, quote all the way through 3.18, William, which says this, The one who believes in Jesus is not judged eternally by God unto death. But the one who does not believe has been judged already by God because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The Apostle John writes his gospel to end unbelief in Jesus Christ. He's not trying to end global warming. He's not trying to end homelessness. He's not trying to end hunger and physical starvation. John is concerned with spiritual starvation of all mankind who are born rebels to God and actively choose not to believe in Jesus. John uses his words to help his readers believe. Believe. He says in John 20, 31, Therefore many other signs Jesus also did in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, you may have now life. John the Apostle's desire was the same as John the Baptist's. Whose witnessing, confessions, and testimony of Jesus come before, or sorry, become the focus of John's gospel here at verse 19 and for several verses that follow. It's at John 1.19, where John records the hostile confrontation that the Baptist had with the Jews who were sent from Jerusalem. Confrontation with the Baptist was required because of the words that the man was using. Words like repentance, baptism the forgiveness of sins, and a soon-coming Messiah. If this confrontation took place in Texas, somebody would be obligated to say, Them's fighting words. And at this point, the Jews are interested in asking questions. They're interested in John's ideas, his words, his call to obedience. Brothers and sisters, we must be interested in the questions of the Jews, and the Baptist answers his words ideas his calls to obedience. Let's read the questions and the answers of this fighting word conversation and confrontation together now, where you are in John 1.19, as the Apostle John records for us. And this is the witness of John the Baptist. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but he confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? Said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. Therefore they said to him, Who are you, that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent for the Pharisees, and they asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, saying, I baptize with water. But among you stands one whom you do not know. This one is he who comes after me, of whom I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Verse 29. On the next day, he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who has been ahead of me, for he existed before me. I did not know him, but so that he might. He manifested to Israel, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness about him, saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven. And he abided on him. And I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, the one upon whom you see the Spirit descending and abiding on him, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have borne witness that this is These words in chapter 1, verse 29, on the next day, they cause us to understand that John is keeping a chronology of the first full week of Jesus' ministry. You can see this in the words in verse 29 and 35, 39, 43, and chapter 2, verse 1. There are seven days in view between chapter 1, verse 29, and chapter 2, verse 11. It seems that the Genesis theme that John starts his gospel with in chapter 1, verse 1, when he introduces prologue with the words, in the beginning was the word, This Genesis theme is kept alive by introducing one full seven-day week into John's Gospel in chapter 1. And yet it is not John's chronology that keeps the text alive, inasmuch as the life of the text is found, friends, in the confessions of Christ captured over these seven days by the Apostle John. I count eight confessions of Christ in these seven days which end with Jesus changing water into wine in Canaan. For this reason, I'm preaching a series titled Word, Witness, Week. WWW, Word, Witness, Week. Where the Apostle John captures the testimony that attends to the Word of God, Jesus Christ. And the confessions of four men and one woman who drive home the message of the prologue, the first 18 verses. What's the message of the prologue? What is the consistent confession? It is witnessed, as we see in chapter 1 of John, Jesus is God. Hear it from me, the Apostle John, first. And then hear it from John the Baptist, and then more men, and even a woman. Hear this message. Jesus is God. Don't leave chapter 1, and even chapter 2, 11. Don't leave this first whole section of the Bible, this first whole section of my gospel, without understanding. Jesus is God. Turn your Bible to Matthew. Confessions in the Word Witness Week of John chapter 1, we begin with John the Baptist, who was born six months before Jesus, to the priest Zechariah and his barren wife Elizabeth. Elizabeth was a woman who was barren no longer. She would conceive and bear a son whose name would be called John. This was spoken to Zechariah the priest by the angel Gabriel while he was serving in the holy place in the temple in Jerusalem. However, John's birth was proclaimed 700 years before Gabriel spoke to Zechariah. Isaiah, the prophet, records in Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice is calling, prepare the way of Yahweh in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. The birth of John the Baptist to Zechariah and Elizabeth was the fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah 40, verse 3. And the prophecy from the last chapter of the Old Testament in Malachi, chapter 4, verse 5. The Isaiah prophecy was 700 years before Christ. The Malachi prophecy was 400 years before Christ. 400 years before the birth of John the Baptist, the Lord, the Lord's last prophet, Malachi, recorded the word of the Lord saying in Malachi 4.5, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and awesome day of John the John the Baptist fulfilled this prophecy as well. He came in the power and the spirit of Elijah, just like the angel Gabriel said that he would when he spoke to Zechariah in the temple in Luke 1.17. You're 1, 17. in Matthew. We're late, late in Jesus' ministry. He took Peter, James, and John up onto a high mountain, and he transfigured himself right in front of them. They caught a glimpse of Jesus' glory. And then we read in Matthew 17, verse 9, And as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has been risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why? Why then? Do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said to them, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. The disciples understood that Jesus had spoken to them about the ministry of John the Baptist. The disciples picked up on Jesus' words, Did to him whatever they wished. And the disciples remembered. The Jews came and inspected John the Baptist, but dismissed him and his message. And the Roman authorities, they arrested him, and they ultimately beheaded John the Baptist. The prophecies they all fit together, the ministry of Christ, the words of Christ himself, John the Baptist was Elijah, the forerunner of Jesus, Jesus who is the promised Messiah, whose ministry John was consumed with. Turn back in your Bible to John, chapter 1, and we'll look at verse 24, John 1, 24. I've got to believe that many of you at this point understand that earlier this week, a Chinese quote-unquote weather balloon the size of two school buses flew off course, as it were, and was traveling over Montana at an altitude of 60,000 feet. At least that is what China is apologizing for, that one of their weather research airships had accidentally blown off course causing it to pass over sensitive U.S. nuclear sites in Montana. How should we, Americans, respond to this incursion by China into sensitive American airspace? Well, as you can imagine, former President Donald Trump had an opinion about handling the situation immediately. He tweeted out in all caps on Friday in the early in the morning, shoot down the balloon! Exclamation There was great concern among our nation's leaders about this weather balloon? Was it spying on us this whole time? What should be done about it? Should we send an F-22 to blast the balloon out of the sky? What should be done about China and this intrusion into our airspace? How shall we respond? Well, good news if you weren't paying attention to this. Yesterday, our president finally got the resolve to shoot the balloon down. Late yesterday, the balloon was shot out of the sky and landed in the ocean. The international Intrusion Incident that we experienced over the course of this past week, friends, is extremely minor in comparison to the international incident that happened 2,000 years ago when John the Baptist came preaching a message to Jews of repentance in a little town called Bethany in the east of Jordan. John's ministry was provocative and hostile with the Jews, and it was a result. And and, and hostility with the Jews was a result. Because his entrance in the ministry was unauthorized by the Jewish authorities and the Jewish elite in Jerusalem. The response of the Jewish religious, religious elite in Jerusalem was to send out a delegation of priests and their brute squad, the Levites, to investigate, interrogate, and even evaluate John the Baptist. The reports of his ministry left large questions about who he was and what he was doing people in the crowds were asking themselves in Luke 3.15, is John the Messiah? And on Word, Witness Week, Day 1, the Apostle John takes us right into the conflict between the Jews and John the Baptist. The priests and the Levites have questions, and John the Baptist has answers. And last week, we saw in John 1.19-23, the Jews came asking the first of two questions. The first question being, who are you? John the Baptist answers three times negatively. I'm not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. And then positively in John 1.23. John quotes Isaiah the prophet, giving the Jews his first positive confession. uh, He effectively tells them positively he is Messiah's forerunner. Promised in Isaiah 40, verse 3, in Malachi, chapter 4, verse 5. You see it there in the text in John chapter 1, verse 23. This is confession number one of Word Witness Week, day one, confession one, as a result of question one, this is the forerunner confession. The forerunner confession. Confession number one, the forerunner confession. But this confession is not all the Jews came for on day one. They have more questions, as we'll see. And as we read John chapter one, verse 24, where the Apostle John says, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. What is the purpose of this comment by John? He's already told us that religious inspectors were sent by the Jews. What added detail must we understand from chapter 1, verse 24? Among the Jews, in chapter 1, verse 19, the Pharisees were the minority party in the Sanhedrin, the highest council of religious leadership in Jerusalem. The Sadducees were the dominant party, albeit they were the more liberal party as well. William Hendrickson says the Sadducees constituted the worldly party and busied themselves with the affairs of the present age. They were the pragmatists. They could afford to be so. They had the Pharisees close by, who were like the spiritual little brothers to the Sadducees. As the runts of the spiritual family in Jerusalem, the Pharisees found their identity in religious legalism, in rule keeping. A. Carson says, the Pharisees were extremely scrupulous about observing every minute detail in the law of God as they understood it and were engaged in establishing an oral tradition about how the law was to be obeyed. As a party, the Pharisees date back to the intertestamental period, that time between Malachi, 400 years before the arrival of Christ. They came to prominence, the Pharisees did, during the Maccabean Re- Revolt, When Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the temple and attempted to destroy Judaism, Pharisaic zeal to the law, duty, order, and structure not only sustained the Jews, it afforded the Pharisees a permanent place, even if a small role, among the religious elite in Jerusalem. Instigating John the Baptist and investigating him would have been best handled by this minority party in the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, who would have selected the themselves and the Levites, whom they probably trained in their own ways to perform the strict examination that followed. William Hendrickson says in chapter 1, verse 24 that this verse explains, A, why the investigation had been so thorough, because the Pharisees were very strict. B, why the baptism had referred, why the Baptist, John the Baptist, had referred to the prophet Isaiah. The Pharisees had a much higher regard for the prophet than did the Sadducees. And C, why the examination is continued. Religiously indifferent Sadducees, says Henderson, would probably not have asked any further questions about that. Bruce says the Pharisees would be especially interested in the religious implications of John's activity. Baptism, in their eyes, was an eschatological end times rite to be administered by the one, by by one of the expected figures of the end times. So, friends, it is safe to say this investigation continues with more questioning because of pharisaic zeal. Law, legalism. We read in chapter 1, verse 25, and they asked John the Baptist and said to him, Why then are you baptized? If you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. Now these people, they want to know, what's the deal with you, John? What's the purpose of your ministry? Who gave you the authority to perform any kind of baptism. Your, your baptism is all fouled up, friend. How can you explain your actions? They want answers. Someone explain. What's the deal with John's bogus baptism at Bethany? At this point, I'd like to discuss baptism with you for just a moment. We have this in context. And as I do that, would you turn your Bibles to Ezekiel 36, and we'll look at verse 22. Ezekiel 36, we'll look at verse 22. So the question is, what is baptism? Friends, baptism is immersion in water as a symbolic act of cleansing. It is a symbol of heart change, much in the way that your wedding ring is a symbol of your covenant union to your spouse. Baptism, friends, is an external demonstration which communicates an internal reality. Baptism is a practice, an exercise, an action that allows people to see visually a representation of the unseen work of God that has already previously happened in a human heart. Baptism is a requirement for those who choose to follow Jesus Christ. Now think about this for a moment. Just a few an external demonstration of an internal reality. Got that concept? An external demonstration of an internal reality. Well, I'm going to give you a perfectly opposite symbol of baptism to maybe help seal this into your mind. Baptism says to your friends and family, and particularly to the church, that we have here a human heart that has found peace, comfort, cleansing, joy, the forgiveness of sins, purpose, meaning in life, love, self-control, all in Jesus Christ who put his Holy Spirit inside of that heart. That's what baptism says. You have baptism, you perform a baptism here on this stage, you go through baptism, that's what you're saying. To your brothers and sisters in Christ, you're saying all of that and so much more. What is said when you come across a young person who is cutting themselves? Cutting is exactly what it sounds like. Taking a knife, cutting yourself open drawing blood, and doing it on purpose. This is self-mutilation that comes with a rush of adrenaline, just like a drug. Right now, there are anxious, angry, bitter, saddened, broken, hurting, grief stricken sorrow-filled young men and women all across Spokane, many of whom are likely engaged in cutting in some fashion. People say, why would anyone cut themselves on purpose? That's outrageous. Friends, cutting is an external demonstration of an internal reality. you understand? It's an external demonstration of an internal reality. The pain of cutting is a small, small visual symbol of the great, great hurt and anger inside of that human heart. If you're cutting yourself, or if you know of anyone who is cutting themselves, I would ask that you please come and talk. I have the answers that can help you out of that challenge in life. Cutting will not bring ultimate relief to the spiritual sorrows of your soul, but a conversation about Jesus Christ will. Look at the results of the ministry of John the Baptist. He had conversations with people who were hurting about Jesus, the coming Messiah about sin, repentance, and forgiveness, which resulted in hundreds of people being baptized in water as a symbol of internal heart change and a desire for spiritual washing and cleansing. So if you struggle in any particular capacity, today, and this goes with any sin that happens to be an external demonstration of your own personal, internal, sinful, pain-filled reality, will you please come see me? Regarding the practice of baptism, the Jews only understood baptism for Gentiles who converted to Judaism. This is the only way that they understood baptism. It is the case that converts to Judaism practiced what is called proselyte baptism. Leon Morris says of proselyte baptism, when such a conversion took place, Gentile to Jew, the males of the family were circumcised and all of both sexes were baptized. This was seen as the ceremonial removal of all of the pollutions contracted in the Gentile world. What's interesting to note about proselyte baptism is this. Proselyte baptism was self-administered. Not the circumcision part, but the baptism part was self-administered. You washed yourself. Converts to Judaism washed themselves in water symbolically. They washed themselves. John the Baptist. Not only was he personally baptizing people in water, moreover, John was calling for the baptism of Jews, which raised four significant baptism issues with the Pharisees. To the Pharisees, they don't understand the practice of John's baptism, the forgiveness of John's baptism, the authority of John's baptism, or the eschatological concerns that are bound up in John's baptism. Questions for the Pharisees. At the thought of John the Baptist's baptism questions start flying all over Who gave you the authority to do any kind of baptism? Why are you actually putting your hands on people and baptizing them? Why the Jews? And why are you doing this now? Jews thought of themselves as fully clean already. It was the Gentiles who were the dirty ones in God's sight, John's baptism was an admission by Jews of being unclean and needing spiritual forgiveness from God. Notice also, John's baptism was not something that you practiced on your own. It was something administered to you. There was an intermediary who aided you in your cleansing, restoration, and nearness to God through forgiveness. Forgiveness that came by way of obedience to God. Notice also, the intermediary was not Christ nor Elijah reincarnate. Nor the prophet, nor was the intermediary John in John the Baptist, John's baptism, part of the Sanhedrin. He wasn't a Sadducee, he wasn't a Pharisee, he wasn't a scribe, or a priest, or a Levite. It's no wonder the Pharisees were both frustrated by John's baptism and intent on questioning him. What are you doing? There? Leon Morris says the novelty in John's case and the sting in his practice was that he applied to Jews the ceremony that was held to be appropriate in the case of Gentiles coming newly into the faith of Judaism. To put Jews in the same class for cleansing as Gentiles was horrifying, says Leon unknown. Should the cleansing of Jewish hearts have been horrifying? Not for those who've read Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-two, where you are in your Bibles now. See, in Ezekiel 36, Yahweh expresses his great anger and disgust with the nation of Israel who are rebels, who have defiled the temple and defamed the great name of the Lord God, the name Yahweh. Yahweh will not allow for Israel to continually defame his holy name. He will not allow for this. His glory matters too much to him to allow for Israel to continually defame his name. And so he will act. He must act to defend his own name. He will act. And so we read the baptism and the cleansing words of Yahweh through the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36.22. When Yahweh says to the prophet, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says Lord Yahweh, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you have come. I will prove the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares the Lord Yahweh, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. And I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean, and I will cleanse you from all of your uncleanness. And from all of your idols, and moreover, I will give you a heart, a new heart, and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and will be careful to do my judgments. Notice in the text: I will, I will, I will. We have a God who is jealous for his own name and for his own glory. He will get the glory that he deserves. In his own power and his own strength, he will cause the salvation that will lead to the glory that he desires. To this point in the Old Testament, there is a great deal of tension that has already been built up, particularly through the prophets, because of Israel's stubborn, hard-hearted rebellion to God, their creator, and the God who graced them as a nation, the Lord said to Israel through Isaiah in Isaiah 1.16, wash yourselves, purify yourselves, remove the evil deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, execute justice on the orphan, plead for the widow. And then, in Jeremiah twenty two twenty two, Jeremiah two twenty two, the Lord reproved Israel again, saying to them, although you wash yourself with lies. And use much soap, the stain of your iniquity is ever before me, declares the Lord John. I would hope to in those two verses that you would feel the tension of the Old Testament. Wash yourselves, and although you wash yourselves, you will never remove the stain of your iniquity. That's tension. Israel must wash themselves, be purified themselves, and yet no amount of washing with soap will remove the stain of their sin. This is the great and terrible tension of the Old Testament. 5 in Ezekiel 36, 25 and 25, the relief of the greatest tension of the Old Testament is right there in the text. When Yahweh himself will wash and cleanse his own people, giving them new hearts and a new spirit, even Placing his own spirit inside of them and causing them to walk in his statutes and keep his commandments. If you turn back in your Bible to John 1, 26. The Old Testament case for Israel needing to be washed and cleansed from the stain of their sins is clearly made in Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. But this text is by no means alone in its claim that Yahweh must cleanse his sick, sin-filled people. Isaiah 4:4. 4, 4 speaks of a time when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and rinsed away the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst. In Jeremiah 33.8, Yahweh says, And I will cleanse them from all of their iniquity by which they have sinned against me, and I will pardon all of their iniquity by which they have sinned against me, and by which they have transgressed against me. And so the question seems pretty obvious. If spiritual cleansing for the forgiveness of sins leads to salvation, and that is the plan of God, both at the present time and in the future, then shouldn't God be doing the cleansing by the time we arrive at the Messiah 2,000 years ago and not John the Baptist? Isn't the job for Yahweh to do the cleansing or the Messiah or the prophet? What is John trying to prove with his cleansing, with his immersion, with his baptism? Edward Plink says the Pharisees' question would be this. Why, John, do you perform what appears to be an official act if you have no official status in and of yourself? John answers the question in frustration of it. Jews and the Pharisees in John chapter 1, verse 25, where we read, John answered them, saying, I baptize with water. But among you stands one whom you do not know. This one is he who comes after me, of whom I am not worthy, to untie the strap of his sandal. This answer is a two-handed shove right into the figurative chest of the priest and the Levites sent by the Pharisees and the Jews in Israel. This answer, friends, is two figurative slaps to the face and a knockout punch to the jaw of the religious elites in Jerusalem. Now, Notice also, this answer was immediate. John didn't wait around a few days to present a politically pleasant and sensitive answer in the face of the hostilities that he had created, John answers. in John's answer, John offers three explanations for baptizing Jews that emphasize the need to believe in Jesus. It is in John's answer here in the text that John gives three justifications of his forerunner ministry, which focus attention on the coming Christ. So what three justifications of John's ministry focus attention on Christ and the need to believe in him? Well let's go through these one at a time. John's three justifications include justification number one. The first of three justifications of John's baptism. Justification number one, John's baptism is simple repentant immersion. Number one, John's baptism is simple repentant immersion. This is what he's saying. My baptism is simple repentant immersion. Number one, where do we see John's baptism is? Simple repentant immersion. John answers that verse 26, saying, I baptize with water. John is not bragging here, friends. (laughs) I baptize with water. (laughs) Good for you. He's not bragging. This is a humble acknowledgement of inferiority. It's a setup comment that is designed for contrast. And the contrast is to be found in the quality of the baptism he performs versus the quality of the baptism that Yahweh's Messiah will perform. These two baptisms have similarities, but one is entirely preparatory, while the other baptism is entirely salvific. One is for the purpose of contemplation and introspection; The other is for regeneration, sanctification, and glorification in heaven forever. John is well aware of the differences that exist between his water baptism and the spirit baptism of the Messiah that comes after him. How does John know the difference between his baptism of water and Messiah's baptism of the Spirit? I have to believe that John the Baptist knew about the prophecy of Ezekiel 36, 25 27. He could have read about that baptism himself or been trained to understand that baptism by his priest father, Zechariah. This is the way that we come to understand baptism. We read about it. We're told about it by our pastors and teachers. But there is another way to learn about the differences between John's baptism and Messiah's baptism which is a really special way. Another way that offers great confirmation to the need and the power of John the Baptist's ministry. See, friends, John learned about Messiah's baptism when Yahweh spoke directly to Baptist. God told John the Baptist that his baptism was simply perpetrated. Let me read this in John chapter 1, verse 33. John the Baptist says, And I did not know Messiah... But God, who sent me to baptize with water, said to me, The one upon whom you see the Spirit descending and abiding on him, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Your baptism is water. That guy's baptism is with the Holy Spirit. John learned about his and Messiah's baptism directly through revelation, given to him by God. This is further proof that John the Baptist was the last Old Testament prophet The last Old Covenant prophet of Yahweh, John's prophetic ministry focused on paving a spiritual highway for the Lord. His work was necessary. But friends, it was exclusively preparatory. And as such, John's baptism was inferior to the baptism of Messiah. And his two-handed shove to the Pharisees was to make sure that they understood. Look, man, I'm just baptizing people with water. There's nothing salvific going on here. On this stage, we do it in a feed trough. It's just water. It's not salvific. John learned about his and his Messiah's baptism through direct revelation from God. This is special. John MacArthur says, instead of defending his baptizing ministry, he merely acknowledges in this comment his limitations. John's baptism made hearts ready for the arrival of Messiah through introspection, contemplation, humility, and repentance. He was the voice crying out, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." In Matthew chapter three, verse two, and again, adding in Matthew three eight, therefore bear fruit in keeping with the repentance that you've done. John was a simple repentance. John's was a simple repentance with a simple repented immersion, and a great many of the Jews in Jerusalem were listening to John's ministry and message, and they came to a place of genuine, broken-hearted repentance over their sins. That is awesome. This was a repentance that could not find they, the day that the Jews that, that found this repentance. This was a, a repentance that met the need of their heart. They, they could not find the relief that they were looking for in the animal sacrifices and all the offerings that they were continually making to them. They had to be John was a spiritual shepherd. He was assaulting the hearts of these wayward sheep in order for the Savior's grace to be found by them, to bring them back to the fold. John's spiritual shepherding was done simply with a baptism of water. How hurtful to a Pharisaic seal pride was John's simple yet effective water baptism. The assault on the pride of the Pharisee is only begun, first by explaining that his baptism was simply done in water, and continues second when this camel hair coat wearing, simple water baptizer declares the second of three justifications of his baptism. The second of three justifications of his baptism. Number two, in your notes, the second of three justifications of his baptism. Number two, the Jews have straight religious ignorance. Straight religious ignorance. This is the second justification. You guys are religious ignorance. Straight religious ignorance of the Jews. Where does John the Baptist declare the straight religious ignorance? Pharisees during our text in John 1, 26 when he says, But among you stands one whom you do not know. And what a slap in the face this is. Now, can you feel the impact and the blow to the pride and the zeal of the Pharisees as a result of John's here? What does this John the Baptist guy think he is? Now how dare this little twerp, this little ratty, locust-eating, know-nothing false prophet tell the religious, elite, zealous Pharisees, trained priests and Levites, what they can and cannot see standing among them. Friends, do you realize that he's calling them spirits in his mind? Now, That's a hurtful thing to these Pharisees. In, in. Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, he calls out to the same group of people saying, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath of God? with pride and zeal are taking a beating in John's comments. They've been told by a man they consider to be a false prophet that Messiah is actually on the ground walking around among them. The, the eagle has landed. He's here. And yet the watchers in the tower, they can't see him for nothing. Kind of like the balloon that entered our airspace. Initial reports of the Chinese balloon came from observation made by regular citizens. What a black eye to our government officials who are in charge of national security. And here in the text, what a black eye to these Priests and Levi Pharisees. John had baptized Jesus 40 days before. At John chapter 1 verse 29 we read on the next day and that's probably the day that the Pharisees are leaving and headed home to report their findings of John the Baptist what he's been declaring in Bethany beyond the Jordan. But we read in chapter 1 verse 29 probably on the day that they're leaving we read Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. These guys missed it again. William Hendrickson says the Pharisees do not know Messiah and seem not even to be concerned about him. In their eagerness to expose false messiahs, they are ignoring the true Messiah. The enormous ignorance in the religious elite Jews and Pharisees is exposed by John the Baptist, who not only reveals friends, that the eagle has landed, that Messiah has come, but shares further the incredible authority, honor, value, and worth he personally placed on Messiah we come to the third of three justifications of John's baptism ministry. The third of three justifications of John's baptism ministry is number three in your notes. The son of righteousness is imminent. The son of righteousness is imminent. This will be the third of three justifications in John the Baptist's ministry in his baptism. The son of righteousness is imminent. Where does John the Baptist speak of Messiah's worth and imminence, his imminent arrival? When John the Baptist says in chapter 1, verse 27, this one is he who comes after me, of whom I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. What's the most humble thing that you've ever said? What's the most humble thing that you've ever said? That's a difficult question to answer. It's a great question for the youth kids to pick up and discuss some when you're hanging out together. What's the most humble thing that you've ever said? Be careful how you answer that. I'll bet you have a really difficult time answering this question unless you do what John does here. What does John do here? Bring your Bibles to John 3, 27. What John does here that creates this incredible, humble comment, what John does here is that John exalts Jesus Christ as high above himself as any human analogy will allow John the Baptist to do. John chooses to lower himself while at the same time elevating and exalting Messiah at his own personal expense. This is humility. John MacArthur says, in a stunning expression of humility, the Baptist reaffirms the truth that Jesus had a higher rank than he did, even as we have read read, in chapter 1, verse 15. Untying the thong of his master's sandal was the task of the lowliest slave. This would have been an analogy, friends, that the priests and the Levites, but they would have known themselves very well. R.C. Sproul says, the one thing that differentiated a disciple in a rabbinical school from an actual bond slave, the one difference, the one thing, was that the disciple was never required to take care of the shoes or the sandals of the teacher. A slave could be reduced to that humility task, but not a disciple. These priests and Levites would never have had reason to touch another man's sandals. John figuratively, and with all humility, punches these Jews right in the face with this most humble comment. Punched him right in the face with this humble comment. I am not worthy, I am not worthy. To untie the strap of this man. That is genuine. The source of this comment is understood very clearly in the humble life principles that John the Baptist states in John 3.27, where you are now. The apostle John records in John 3.27. John the Baptist answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. Friends, this is humble life principle number one. I'll read the text to you again. A man can receive nothing, unless it has been given him from heaven. Receiving, friends, is conditioned by giving, which all comes out of heaven. I'd like to have everyone say this together. This is humble life principle number one. The text says, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. John he goes on to say, in John 3, 28, You yourselves are my witnesses, that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full because Jesus is the bridegroom, and that's what I'm so excited about. Verse 30. He must increase, but I must keep it. And here, after a wedding illustration that points to the fact that life on earth is all about Jesus the bridegroom, John offers humble life principle number two, he must increase, but I must decrease. Again, I ask that you say with me: humble life principle number two, verse thirty. He must increase, but I must decrease. Turn back in your Bibles to John one twenty seven. Regarding John one twenty seven, Edward Clint says Jesus is incomparably greater than John, and John, as a good witness, makes it known. The Baptist argument reversed the norm. The, the the social norm, in order to magnify the greatness of Christ. Friends, the most humble comments that you will ever make will out of necessity be tied to the magnification of the greatness of Jesus Christ at your expense. In the face of great hostility, John the Baptist answers the Jews with great humility and accuracy as he declares the authority, honor, value, and worth of the soon-arriving Messiah, the Son of Righteousness is This is John's third justification of his baptism. He is boldly, unashamedly declaring the arrival of the Son of Righteousness, and his arrival is at the doors. The ministry of the Baptist was great because he continually lived out his two humble life principles explaining the entirety of his existence in relationship to Jesus. Humble life principle number one, a man can do nothing, can receive nothing, unless it has been given him from heaven. Humble life principle number two, he must increase But I must decrease. John answered the questions of the Pharisees and rightly justified his water baptism ministry. The Jews have been told John's baptism is simple. You are ignorant. Messiah is here. His ministry starts tomorrow. Repent. This is day one of Word Witnesses. Question two. Confession two. This is the sandal strap confession. We have the forerunner confession. Now we have the sandal strap confession. John's second confession declares the infinite value, authority, and imminence of Jesus' ministry. John closes day one by saying in John 1.28, These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan, where John was baptized. This is not the Bethany of Martha, Mary, and their brother Lazarus, which was right outside Jerusalem. This is Bethany on the westernmost edge of the plains of Moab, near the place where from which General Joshua launched his physical conquest over the people in Israel. And as you see in chapter 1, verse 29, on the next day, Jesus returns from 40 days in the wilderness in Bethany. He returns to Bethany from 40 days in the wilderness fighting off Satan. And from this place, Bethany, on the eastern side of the Jordan, Jesus will start his spiritual conquest over the people in Israel from the east side of the Jordan River. Isn't that something? Isn't that something? Just like General John. you consider the hostility of the Pharisees in two questions on day one of Word Witness Week. John the Baptist is a bold and faithful witness of Jesus Christ. Consider the irony of day one, question two, confession two. The Pharisees demanded an answer to the question, what are you doing? It's always so interesting. The, one, the ones who are asking the question are the ones often in the greatest need to answer their own questions. What are you doing, you Pharisees? How do you not know the Messiah is here? Why are you unwilling to be baptized in John's water baptism? Why won't you repent for your proud, wicked legalism that caused you to miss sight of Jesus Christ? As you consider the sandal staff confession of John, allow me to ask you, what are you doing in your life? What is the purpose and meaning of your life? Explain yourself. How do you explain your actions? Yesterday. This last week. Last year. By what principles do you live your life? Are you guided by John's humble life principles, number one? And principle number two, he must increase, and but I must decrease. If not, why not? Well, I, I might know why. I might know why your life's not guided by these humble life principles. Perhaps, friend, today, perhaps you're engaged in your own form of idolatry. Perhaps you don't worship King Jesus because you are continually found worshiping yourself. Well, that always comes with great pain, hurt, sorrow, grief, anxiety, fear, worry, doubt, shame, guilt. Chances are you've engaged in a destructive behavior that is an external demonstration of an internal reality. The internal reality being that you, are a spiritual disaster. Broken, hurting, stuck in your wicked, cycle of sin for which you won't repent. Friend, if this is you, I ask you, I call on you to I ask, is this you? What sin are you engaged in as of this morning or last night for which you know God is just in punishing you eternally? Will you repent? When will you repent? When will you see that your internal spiritual reality will change for the absolute best, when you repent and find Jesus' love and forgiveness more valuable than your wicked, evil, secret sins. Is Jesus worthy of your worship and your full obedience? Or will you continually obey the lust of your flesh and remain a slave of your own private sins? And what are you doing with your life? Will you continue to justify your rebellion to Jesus? Or today, will you believe, trust, and obey? This time with brothers and sisters, we pray, Father, that over the top of our church, a spirit of contrition, humility, introspection, and repentance would blanket our conversation. To the extent that we would be able to very clearly articulate and answer who are we? Especially.